Welcome to Words Matter with Katie Barlow and Joe Lockhart. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Katie Barlow. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Our guest today is president of the Council on Foreign Relations. He is a diplomat and the author or editor of more than a dozen books, including the forthcoming The World, A Brief Introduction. Richard Haas, welcome to Words Matter. It's great to be with you guys. So a year ago, in January of 2019, you made a prediction for the year. And I want to read what you said. (laughs) Here's what you said. If I were going to place a bet on 2019 where there could well be a serious new war in the world, it wouldn't be North Korea. It wouldn't be the South China Sea. You never know what Mr. Putin will do in Ukraine, but I would bet on Iran. And turns out you were right about that. That would have been a pretty good bet. So what did you see in January of 2019 that led you to make that prescient prediction? My first reaction to that is I ought to be raising my consulting fees. Look, this was baked into the cake. Once the United States got out of the 2015 nuclear deal, which essentially placed temporary limits on some of the critical components of Iran's nuclear program, once we unilaterally got out of it, I think it was in 2018, and we slapped on these really draconian sanctions on the Iranian economy. Essentially, we said to the Iranians, we are going to commit and practice economic warfare unless uh, you change your ways fundamentally. And I thought there was no chance the Iranians would change their ways fundamentally. And I thought they would sooner or later push back. But they couldn't push back in kind. They couldn't practice economic warfare against us. They don't have the tools. They don't have the leverage. What they could practice was their kind of warfare. And that meant, as we've seen, things like shooting off missiles at Saudi oil installations, going after tanker traffic, going after using their militias to go after American servicemen and personnel and contractors and so forth. So to me, we were just on a, on a collision course. There was no diplomatic off-ramp. We were practicing economic coercion. They were likely to respond the only way they know how with military. So I just thought this was inevitable. I want to ask about the deal itself for our our listeners that may know some about it, but not everything. So the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, you call it the nuclear deal or the Iran deal. It was announced in Vienna, Austria on July 14th, 2015, and it was between Iran and the P5, or the five permanent members of the UN Security Council, plus the European Union. So for our listeners, could you explain kind of what was in that agreement and how it was working until May 2018 when the U.S. pulled out? What the agreement did was put into place uh, certain limits on Iran, essentially for fixed durations. Roughly a decade, they couldn't be in the business of producing or running any significant number of uh, centrifuges, the machines that enrich uranium, make it bomb capable. There were tremendous limits. They had to dramatically reduce the level of enriched uranium that they were allowed to possess. Those are the, the two principal limits. They agreed to a certain degree of international inspections. In return, they got a significant degree of uh, relief from the economic sanctions that had been in in place. 
They were then, uh, as everybody agreed to, in compliance with the deal. That wasn't the issue. The issue for the new administration of Mr. Trump, because this was obviously an agreement negotiated by the Obama administration, they thought it was flawed. The reason uh, being probably three things or four things. One is that the durations of limits on Iran they thought were too short-lived. The so-called sunset was too uh, soon. I th- for what it's worth, I think they had a point. Secondly, it didn't cover missiles. Missiles were covered by various UN resolutions, but not by this agreement. Thirdly, this agreement had nothing to do, didn't place any constraints on what Iran could do in Syria or Lebanon or Yemen or anywhere else, which I didn't think was a very good argument uh, because you can't expect a single agreement to do everything. We never expected arms control agreements with the Soviet Union to solve the Berlin crisis. We were usually happy that they could solve some of the... uh, nuclear crisis. It didn't deal with, say, domestic conditions inside Iran. So this wasn't an agreement that solved everything, but it was an agreement that reduced the nuclear challenge posed by Iran for, say, 15 years, plus or minus. And it provided us, and by us, I mean Western intelligence agencies, Israel's too, tremendous warning. So if Iran were to wake up one day and decide that it wanted to put together a nuclear weapon, Because of what the agreement did, while the agreement was in force, it would buy us a lot of warning time. People estimated as much as a year. So we would find out they were doing it, and then we would have more than enough time to try to persuade them not to do it or to respond to them. So that that was the advantage of the uh, deal. The critics, again, thought it was too short-lived. It wasn't ambitious enough. It transferred too many uh, resources to Iran. And that's what led this administration to get rid of it slap on these really dramatic sanctions. And for what it's worth, I think though it was never their articulated policy, their hope was essentially that the sanctions would be so, uh, have such an impact that it would either bring down the regime, so-called regime change, or get it to fundamentally change its nature and behavior. I never thought that was realistic. The regime is quite resilient. It knows how to push back. So the sanctions had a real bite. There are estimates that it may have forced the Iranian economy to shrink by as much as 10%. So that's rough. That's one of the reasons we've seen people until recently out in the streets there. But I never thought it was enough to get the regime 40 years after the revolution to change its stripes. Richard, I know that people like John Kerry have been on TV saying that this was the biggest mistake in a long time. I'm interested because I think at the time that it was being negotiated, there were parts of this you supported. You were a critic of part of it. Try to put into some context whether it was a strategic mistake to pull out and what the implications are for both this and our standing in the world. My position essentially was this uh, agreement was uh, not the agreement it could and should have been. I actually think the Obama administration, and this really ticks off John Kerry whenever he hears me say this, so I hope he's not listening, but I thought we were the typical person who went to the used car lot determined to buy a car And we uh, ended up leaving the lot with the car. We wanted the agreement too much. We didn't want to have a crisis with Iran at the time. We didn't want to have any more Middle Eastern crises. This was an an administration that was reluctant to get involved in Syria, we saw. I also think there was a somewhat naive hope that by integrating Iran more into the region, giving them some connections economically, that we would set in motion trends or dynamics in Iran that they would mellow. They would become a more reasonable, more moderate country. I, for one, thought that was uh, naive, and essentially we went into the agreement a little bit too hungry for it and a little bit overly optimistic. 
That said, I opposed what the Trump administration did. I was against getting out of it unilaterally. This wasn't just a bilateral agreement. Also, we had nothing to put in its place. It's one thing to get out of an agreement if you're confident you've got something better, you've got a clear plan B. But the only plan B were these sanctions that, again, were aimed at regime change, which I thought had no chance of working. And I thought, as we began this conversation, it could set us on a collision course with Iran, and I didn't see how that was going to be in U.S. interest. So I was in the odd position where I wasn't in love with the agreement, but then once we had it, I was against unilaterally pulling out. And one other reason, Joe, which is I think it's important for a great power like the United States to be a country of its word, to be predictable. So many other countries, whether they're friends or foes, base their foreign policy on expectations of what we are likely to do. Great powers do have to be predictable. They've got to be reliable. So I thought getting out of this without an alternative, breaking the collective cohesion, set a, a really bad message about our behavior. Yeah, I mean, it's what we've talked on this podcast many times about being the adult in the room, and there needs to be one. And sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't right now. Hopefully there's a few in this room. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> If you break down the decision to go and take out the Iranian general, talk a little bit about that. And with an eye towards where we'll be six months, a year from now, Mm -hmm. there's an argument that Iran in the longer run is going to get what it wants because what they really want is the U.S. out of the region. Mm -hmm. And this may be a step towards doing that. How do you assess near and, I guess, midterm the results of the drone strike and then everything that is going to happen? Well, a narrow calculus, I think you'd have to say that getting Mr. Soleimani off the playing field is a good thing. This was a a dangerous man who, as the expression goes, had a lot of blood on his hands. That said, to some extent, he can be replaced. And in the long run, I'm not sure at all this leaves us better off. As you alluded to, I'm very worried that our position in Iraq is precarious now. And we ought to take stock. If Iran's goal is to get the United States out of Iraq, why do we want to do things that seem to be consistent with that goal? Iraq's one of the most important Arab uh, countries. It's got enormous energy reserves. We want to push back against Iranian influence. We don't want to see ISIS put up stakes again in Iraq. So that ought to give us a pause. Plus, we've now announced new sanctions on top of the old sanctions. So I don't think anything's changed here. I think, again, we continue to practice economic warfare against Iran. I think they're likely to find ways to push back, whether it's against Saudi Arabia or doing something against Israel, doing something with cyber anywhere in the world. So the possibility of continued friction or worse yet, conflict with Iran, I think, is is likely. So I'd make the same prediction I made a year ago. Iran has not stood down, contrary to what the president said. When I take a step back, look at the world now. You've got a rising China. You've got a North Korea. The one thing we know for sure, it will never denuclearize. We have Putin doing what he's doing in Ukraine, and he might be tempted to do it elsewhere. We've got a crisis in in Venezuela that's producing, what, somewhere between one and two million refugees this year. Do we really want the United States to once again find itself getting much more involved in the the Middle East? Indeed, I'm hard-pressed from Donald Trump's point of view why he would want to do this. I thought he believed in America first. 
I thought he was against these quote-unquote forever endless wars. He didn't get involved in Syria. We essentially betrayed the Kurds. He, we didn't respond to the attack on Saudi Arabia. So this seems totally out of character for him and totally inconsistent with his own strategic bias, which was to dial down America's involvement in the Middle East. I don't necessarily share that bias, but all I'm saying is given our desire to, to do more in the rest of the world, it's odd for me to see why we would want to go down this path with Iran. At a minimum, what I would want to do with Iran is offer a serious diplomatic, to use the cliche, off-ramp or alternative against the backdrop of sanctions and go to Iran and say, hey, here's a potential replacement for the 2015 nuclear deal. In exchange for a degree of sanctions relief, we want to have some longer-term limits on what you can do. We want to capture your missile programs. And maybe the sanctions are biting enough that the Iranians might be intrigued. And it's interesting. The uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, in the late 80s, at the end of the, a decade of Iran-Iraq war, he reluctantly accepted peace with then Saddam Hussein, his arch rival. And he said, this is like drinking poison to me. But he was willing to drink the poison to make a compromise with an arch enemy because he thought it was essential to preserve the Iranian revolution. And our goal ought to be to get Iran back to such a point. So we have the economic sanctions, but we're not going to, again, force the regime out of power. We have to be careful even about using the word regime. We should call it the government. And a much more realistic path is we could give them a diplomatic alternative that they may not like, but they might say is their least bad option. Your length and experience in this sphere would take a long time to read at the introduction, but even with a brief read, we can tell that you're not one of those Democrats who loves terrorists. Your experience, you served in the State Department under President Reagan, on the National Security Council under President Bush, 41, and in senior positions at the State Department under Colin Powell in the Bush 43 administration. So I want to take a step back and actually ask what you make of this hyper-politization that's happening with foreign policy by some Republicans, including President Trump himself. I hate it. I'm actually a registered Republican, even though my the first president I worked for was a guy named Jimmy Carter when I worked for him in the Pentagon. Good Georgia boy. And I've worked for Reagan and both Presidents Bush. I'm old enough and old-fashioned enough that I actually do think when it comes to foreign policy, politics ought to stop at the water's edge. Now it's just the opposite. If anything, now we're seeing politics getting more intense at the water's edge. This is, this is bad for the country. So, yeah, I never thought that there was a Democratic or a Republican foreign policy. And so uh, the polarization, the politicization, it's a word I always hate to use, of, of foreign policy is bad for us. And something we were just talking about a minute ago, we talk about predictability, about reliability, about consistency. It's terrible for that. It also sends a terrible image to the world. when This kind of just intense infighting I expect that allies of ours wake up in the morning and they look at it and go, holy smokes, we are going to place our future, our security on this bunch of characters that can't get along and can't agree on anything? Why in the world would we want to do that? So I, I actually think this unnerves to uh, many of our friends around the world. Looking at the whole board and how this is playing out right now, we talk particularly with Joe's expertise that's far more than mine about how polarized we are 
domestically with politics and how that's probably never going to change. Do you think that we can pull this back in from a foreign policy perspective and shift the polarization where this is going? And do you see anyone on the playing field right now that can take a leadership role in that? Uh, I would limit it to the United States, but if there's somebody in the global game board that you see too, I I would just be interested in your thoughts. Well, there's a degree of... uh bipartisan consensus about the challenge posed by China. So all is not hopeless there. I think there's a degree of um, agreement, ironically enough, given recent events, that we ought to reduce our presence in the Middle East, that it's occupied too large a space since uh, the end of the uh, Cold War. I think there's pretty widespread agreement that Mr. Putin is uh, up to no good in Europe. There's tremendous bipartisanship these days on Venezuela. I don't understand the Republican position on climate change, but one day there will be bipartisanship on climate change. So I I don't think it's hopeless. And if a Joe Biden or Mike Bloomberg were elected president, they're they're, they're around the 50-yard line. These are not people in the end zone. And I don't know where a post-Trump Republican Party goes, but I would expect that it's quite possible that once we may not go back to Bush 41, but we could have elements in the Republican Party that if they may not be at the 50-yard line, but they might be at the 30-yard line. These things go, go in cycles, and I think also a lot depends upon what goes on in the world and what we're reacting to. I mean, look what's going on in Australia, for example, on the climate issue. If and when something like that hits us, anyone who suddenly plays party politics is going to look stunningly petty and irresponsible. There was an element of coming together after 9-11. It doesn't last. I understand politics. I'm a grown-up. But I I think now this hyper-partisanship, I tend to think this is something out of the ordinary that probably won't last. So, Richard, you had what I think is one of the three or four most interesting jobs in government when you were at the State Department being the director of policy planning. And that, quite simply, is a little bit kind of the intellectual foundation for our foreign policy across the government. I think about that, and one of my closest friends in the world, Jim Steinberg, had that job. I don't see Steinbergs or Haas in this government. And I'm wondering how you look at the hollowing out of expertise in government over the last three years, or if you believe it's beyond that, and the impact that has. I mean, you you mentioned we need to offer a diplomatic off-ramp. Do we have the intellectual and expertise heft now to come up with something, or are we just running around chasing the president's tweets? I'll be honest with you. I'm worried. I'm uneasy. And I think if you're not worried, you're not paying attention. The hollowing out of the State Department, some of the people who are in positions at home and around the world just shouldn't be. I actually, I'd love to see every single candidate pledge that they would only nominate people to be ambassadors who are qualified. And I don't care if they're career or non-career. You know, we've had non-career ambassadors, Howard Baker, Mike Mansfield, but the kind of guy we sent off to the EU who's in the middle of the Ukraine scandal, that's outrageous. Why, why would we ever have such people representing the United States? This is a country of 330 million people. We can do better. We ought not to pay people off for campaign contributions with, with embassies. I think it's a question of staffing in the administration. A lot of it's not what it should be. Also process. This is probably the most ad hoc administration in modern American history. And that's dangerous because process is good. Process at times can be stifling. I get it. But process also offers tremendous protection. It decreases significantly the chance you'll be surprised 
by events or by reactions to what it is you actually do. And President Trump is a guy who, quite honestly, is, is as uncomfortable with process as anyone I've seen. That's just dangerous. And it seems to me it increases the odds you're surprised. We may have seen elements of that over the last week or two. And the whole response to Soleimani about how Iran would react, or then he threatened sanctions against Iraq. And it's inconceivable to me that that policy came out of a deliberative process. No one who has worked on the Middle East for a minute would do such a, a thing. So uh, I worry about personnel, but I even worry more about the the lack of process and the political culture. And I actually think at times the president, he may be comfortable with it, but, but the job of process and people around the president, and you've done it, I've done it, is not to make the president comfortable. It's not to give him what he wants. It's to give him what he needs. And I think all too often Donald Trump gets what he wants and not nearly enough what he needs. Yeah, I think there was a, um, a New York Times story that reflected that while his advisors get along a lot more now, they are much more accommodating of his wishes, which is exactly the opposite, I think, of what we've seen. What should people look for? Uh, I mean, I think I think you've said that people are naive if they think that the rocket attack in Baghdad was Iran's response. What should people be looking for over the next year as far as how they might hit back and how to calibrate a message from that uh, as far as how this thing is escalating or calming? I think it's probably realistic to look for a couple of things. One is continued gradual breakout from some of the elements of the 2015 nuclear agreement that we've already discussed. And it's one of those games almost of chicken where Iran will continue to do things. And the question is, at what point does the United States or Israel or somebody basically say that's intolerable? So there's, there's that set. I would think Iran will do some things with cyber only because cyber is relatively difficult to trace. And it allows them to cause damage and basically say, hey, we had nothing to do with it. You can't pin anything uh, on us. Militias will continue to do things. We're already seeing that. And they will say, hey, these militias are independent. And even if we give them strategic support, we're not tactically directing them. Nah, you can't hold us accountable or responsible. I think they'll probably avoid, they themselves, Iran, direct action against American forces. But I wouldn't be surprised if Iran did some direct action against some of the neighbors. I think they'd like to take advantage of the fact that the United States has put some distance between itself and its traditional friends in the region, particularly the Saudis, and maybe leverage them a bit. I think it's interesting here. We haven't mentioned it. But what got the United States as involved as we've been recently was not attacks on Saudi Arabia or shipping. It was the killing of an American contractor and then attacks more directly on American installations. So my, my guess is the Iranians have internalized that. And they have said, okay, we probably got a bit more leeway so long as we avoid one set of targets in ways that can be traced back to us. But we've got a lot of leeway if either we go after a different set of targets or things can't be easily traced to us. Yeah, uh, and the, the president made that pretty clear in his statement, which was in, in celebrating no casualties. And exactly. That, that it may not have been a wise diplomatic message, but it was, it was a clear message. And it had been one that had been made before. And I think, the, again, I think they've internalized it. So, again, they won't stand down, but they will be selective. But the, the danger is still that everybody miscalculates. We don't have very good direct lines of communication. And 
And this is kind of the fog of diplomacy. And it's very easy for Americans and Iranians to misread one another. And so I'm not sanguine that we can pull this off indefinitely. It's why I feel some urgency about establishing more dedicated diplomatic channels and by beginning a more dedicated diplomatic conversation. I think just leaving this out there to chance is, uh, as we'd say, risky business. I want to end with a comment you made in recent days that actually shifts our perspective from the world back to our shores, back to the homeland. And you said it's been almost half a century since Professor Arthur Schlesinger Jr. published The Imperial Presidency. And if anything, the imbalance between the legislative and the executive branches has grown. Do you think that there's any going back from that? And what can we do or what can Congress do to kind of recapture its role and the balance between Article One and Article Two? Well, one, I, I find it ironic that I, I tweeted that and am saying this because I, for a long time, was a card-carrying member of the executive-first approach to policy. I'll admit it. I never, though, imagined we'd have what we have now. And I think what we need to do, Congress needs to do some things. There must be well over 100 grants of authority. Some of the, for example, some of the grants of authority that Congress, that this administration used to sanction Canada. That's because under all these laws that Congress passed, it gave the executive tremendous discretion. And this, this executive branch has run with it. The Obama administration did all sorts of things. Uh, again, essentially legislation is, is tiresome and tedious takes time. Often you can't get anything agreed. Much easier to do things through the regulatory channel or just do it unilaterally. It wasn't invented by the Trump administration. You know, nuclear weapons obviously created a, a certain urgency. But it just seems to me if the founders came along, they would, they would not recognize what we now have. So yeah, there are some decisions that have to be made in a matter of seconds and minutes. I get the need to delegate those. But fundamental decisions of trade policy or foreign policy, we don't have to decide those between 2.30 and 2.32 a.m. You've got time to talk about it. So if I were Congress, I would be looking a lot at reclaiming certain powers that have been transferred. It may be very hard to do this now, though, because everything will be seen through the partisan lens you mentioned before. So Republicans in the Senate will probably oppose anything that seems to rein in the president. So this may only happen. Funnily enough, when you have one party control Congress and also control the White House, and it's not seen as a partisan effort by one party to corral the other. It may actually have to be more of a constitutional rebalancing than something seen as partisan. So ironically enough, it may only come about when you have one party control. I'm going to throw one more in. Yes, um, sir. And you lived through the lead up to the Gulf, the second Gulf War. The Iraq War, 2003 uh, yeah, Iraq yeah, War. Yeah, Iraq War. Yeah. And, you know, I think in the aftermath of that, there was a, maybe not a crisis, but certainly a uneasy feeling about how intelligence was used and our intelligence gathering. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Secretary Powell has spoken <clears throat> about this, sure. you know, many, many times. It feels like there's exponentially a worse problem now, having lived through three years of the president himself uh, denigrating the intelligence mm -hmm. community. Is there a solution there? Is there, how big a problem is it? I just feel like we went through about a 10 year convulsion as a country of, we felt like we were led into war on false terms. Yeah. And now we have a president who says, don't believe the people who are telling you 
what's going on in the world, is it possible to get back to a place where there's a consensus and we move forward as a country? And what will that take? Uh, I sure hope so. Uh, you know, the intelligence community, in my experience, is filled with a lot of professionals. Not a lot of uh, agenda there. So uh, I always thought they were pretty straight shooters. We disagreed at times. Doesn't mean they were wrong and I was right. And even when they got it wrong on weapons of mass destruction, for the most part, it wasn't because anybody was intentionally lying. I mean, there were people in the administration who had an agenda, but not the intelligence community. And even Powell, when he made the speech at the UN, he scrubbed everything he said, and he thought that everything he said was, was accurate. Turned out that several things were not, but that was not out of intent. That was just simply we got it wrong. This administration's relationship with the intel community is fundamentally different. Essentially, it's been to discredit it. It's been to uh, ignore it. Now they're in the ironic position where they they feel compelled to— Hug the deep state. Yes. Where is that deep state where yeah. we need it? And make the case that it was necessary, it was imminent, an imminent threat that they had no choice but to uh, respond to. So it's ironic. Hopefully, this will lead to a recovery in the relationship between policymakers and intelligence people, but I won't hold my breath. I would just say one other thing on that, which is um, it's important that if there is a strong case to be made for imminence, that we get it out there, because there is a lot of suspicion in part because of the historical echoes about WMD that you, you mentioned. But also, there's a larger debate here that even if, imagine we have lots of information about imminence or there is a decent case, there's still the question of whether it was smart and whether it was wise and whether it was strategically in our interest. So I hope that the conversation in Washington doesn't just focus on the question of uh, imminence, whether it was justified, but I do hope the larger conversation stays on the question of whether it was smart. So based on what you know, do you think it was smart? I disagree with it. I think we had uh, better options which had better consequences. Well, Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Both Joe and I look forward to reading your next book later this year, which is called The World, A Brief Introduction. Maybe we'll be able to have you back on and chat then. Fantastic. Thank we'll, you. we'll need you for more than 20 minutes, though, because <laughs> the world's a big place. Brief introduction. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Well, after that wonderful interview with Richard Haas, we want to get your take, Joe, on what's on your mind this week and the context of everything that's going on with Iran and a little bit of impeachment, too, and how they might be related. I want to talk about some reporting from The Wall Street Journal that came out that President Trump actually told some associates after killing Soleimani that he was under pressure to deal with Soleimani from GOP senators that he thought were important in his upcoming impeachment trial. And two senators, Senator Mike Lee and Rand Paul, seem to not be thrilled with how they have received information on the Iran dealings and on Soleimani and, and how that's going so far. So it seems like even though his original goal was to appease some senators, Senators, or at least in part it was, that doesn't seem to be playing out so well for him. How do you see this going into uh, an impeachment trial? Well, I mean, Mike Lee and Rand Paul are the two most predictable members of the Republican caucus in the Senate when it comes to these constitutional issues and War Powers Act and limiting the president's authority. So if Mike Pompeo thought he could go in and charm them, Mike Pompeo is a fool, <laughs> And what he did is he made the problem a whole lot worse. And I think it exposed a division in the Republican Party in the, in the, in the Senate. I don't know that it has a long-term impact 
on the, the president's ability to conduct foreign policy, but it sure was an ugly moment and gave a lot of credibility to the Democrats' skepticism. I think that's probably the biggest impact it had. It wasn't Democrats all of a sudden didn't look like the whining party of opposition. They looked like even the Republican leaders are, are agreeing with us. The Wall Street Journal reference, and I, the, these stories were in the Washington Post and the New York Times also. That's the, probably the most troubling thing of this whole affair. I mean, I think it was interesting that Richard at the end, someone who went through the lead up to Gulf War and understands what happens when intelligence gets manipulated by political actors, almost quietly at the end said this was a mistake. And we're finding out now that one of the reasons the president uh, has done it, or at least he's told people, is because he wanted to shore up support among Republicans for his own fate. And that, you know, there's one thing about Donald Trump is he's a pathological liar, but he has this very narrow, honest streak when he wants to show off. And I think he's being very honest when he says, I did this to show them how tough I am. We, we have destabilized the region and maybe the world because Donald Trump is worried about himself. And that's the common denominator that everything comes back to. That's why he's being impeached, because he consistently puts himself in front of the country, his own interests politically, financially, ahead of what the country's interests are. And that's why he's going to be sitting in the dock in the Senate as early as this week or next week. We also got reporting that Nancy Pelosi plans to send the articles of impeachment over so we can expect a trial pretty soon. We've got the early rumblings from from Mike Lee and Rand Paul, at least about Iran, that at least demonstrate some dissension or some ability to speak up outside the, the traditional Republican talking points that everyone seems to have been sticking closely to. We also have heard a little bit from Romney, who has indicated that he wants to hear from witnesses or at least from John Bolton. So how do you see us going into the impeachment trial, knowing that the president needs all of those votes to come out positively on the other end? Well, there'll be a lot of debate as everybody looks at this two months from now, two years from now, 20 years from now, about Pelosi's gambit of holding back these impeachment articles. And I think history will serve her well for a couple of reasons. One is, one, partly, is they got lucky. They got lucky that new information came out. And they were able to take advantage of it and talk about, see, this is exactly why we're doing this. But I think more fundamentally, what Speaker Pelosi was trying to do was frame the narrative of the Senate trial as the Republicans wanted to frame it as the president's either guilty or he's not guilty. And they were going to prove he's not guilty. And the way you prove someone's not guilty is at the end of the day, you take a vote and you quit or you convict. What Speaker Pelosi has done is changed the narrative. The narrative of this trial now is, is it going to be a real trial or is it going to be a show trial? Is it going to be a cover-up? That's how we go into this debate, whether it's this week or next week, whenever it starts. So while the first phase will be important, the House managers making their case, uh, it'll be really important with the White House presenting a defense because we don't know what that defense is. We know what it can't be any longer. It can't be that you don't have any firsthand corroboration. Because if you make that defense, you then 
make the logical case for, well, let's bring in the firsthand corroboration. And by the way, John Bolton is now saying he's willing to testify. So to me, it's an open question of what their defense will be. Uh, it may be that they offer very little defense. You know, they, they say prosecution didn't make their case. Let's get to a vote. There'll be a motion to dismiss, which has a chance of passing. If Republicans just want to get rid of this, they'll pay a political price for that. But the meat of this, the substance of this will be a full-on debate about whether this will be the first impeachment hearing in the history of the Senate. And the Senate's done some 15 of them that didn't have witnesses and didn't have documents provided to it. And that's ultimately a heavy lift for some Republicans. And that's what this is all going to play up to. One of the reasons that all is going to happen is because Speaker Pelosi held the impeachment articles back and allowed this narrative to form. And the Republicans don't have a narrative changing argument. They're going to, I'm sure they think they've won this battle, but I don't think they're going to win this war politically. That doesn't mean the president's going to be removed. But the American public is going to judge not so much the president's innocence or guilt. They're going to judge the validity of the trial. And in that case, the president most certainly is going to lose. Because if he's acquitted by something that's seen as a show trial, he's not granted the political benefit of innocence. And that's what Democrats have been trying to set up. And it's gotten lost a little bit over the last week. But it's... I say this on almost any legislative question. Nancy knows what she's doing, and she did this right. Well, if she does, in fact, send over the articles of impeachment and name the House managers, the landscape will almost certainly be very different the next time we talk and hear your thoughts. So we look forward to that. Until then. Talk to you then, Katie. Thank you for listening to Words Matter. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers.